The scripture readings this morning are Mark 10, verses 35 through 45, and Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Appoint us to sit, one at the right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to appoint, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that among the Gentiles, those whom they recognize as their rulers lord it over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. Instead, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. If then there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any partnership in the Spirit, any tender affection and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you not look at your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Well, uh, school is, is back in session, as, as we all know and are adjusting to, and our oldest is a senior this year, a senior in high school, and that means that she is beginning the journey of thinking about college applications. You know, these days, um, colleges want to see more than just uh, perfect GPA scores and perfect SAT or ACT scores. They also want to see leadership experience from their college applicants. And so college applicants today are encouraged and, and uh, yeah, highly encouraged to list all of their leadership experience that they've had throughout their whole 18 years of life um, up until 
college. And so, you know, I'm thinking about this. I did a little research to see what Hannah's competition would be, what kinds of leadership experiences that people might list on their college applications when they're 18 years old. And here are a few things that I discovered. One person wrote, while still in the womb, I spearheaded the movement for my twin in me to enter the birth canal. <laughs> the real leader right there. Headed for greatness right from the womb. While still in nursery, I organized the toddlers to campaign for recyclable diapers. Yeah. While in first grade, I represented my class at the school board meeting, petitioning the move to 2% milk at snack time. When I was in the fourth grade, I went on a Girl Scout expedition to the planet Jupiter and devised a system by which children could share oxygen to save baggage weight on their return home. And then finally, when I was in the eighth grade, I scythed deep into the Amazon jungles and discovered an unknown tribe, learned their language, and helped them find a sustainable water supply. I don't know if my daughter's going to get into the college with this competition at the age of 18. Her leadership skills might not be quite there. It's a bit of an exaggeration, isn't it? But we do live in a society that prizes leadership. We, we want to teach people how to be leaders. We want to make people great. We want to form leaders out of our, out of our kids. But we don't feel the same way about leadership as we do about our public leaders much of the time. We've been burned by leaders, leaders who have let their egos corrupt them, uh, who've become deceptive, manipulative, self-serving, oppressive. Leaders don't usually start out that way. They, they start out with great ambition, the great desire. They're simply wanting, determined, aspiring people, wanting to throw themselves passionately into a cause. This kind of ambition, I think, is, is actually what concerned Jesus about James and John when they asked him, what will you do for us, whatever it is that we want you to do for us? This is what they said to him. They said, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus probably recognized their, their wink at the little perks that they would get and the public acclaim that would be theirs by being Jesus' leading executives. They knew that he was on the train bound to glory and they wanted a seat on that train. But Jesus told them that they were missing the point. Still, still they were missing the point. Three times already, the disciples and Jesus on their walk to Jerusalem, Jesus had explained to them that while indeed he would need to come into his own, it would be necessary for him first to be condemned to death, to be mocked, flogged, beaten, and crucified. You don't know what you're asking me, Jesus is saying to his disciples. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He wasn't talking about baptism with water. He was talking about his death. 
and to be brimming, uh, the, the cup overflowing, the cup of Jesus that he drinks is a cup that overflows with selfless love for others. Can you drink that cup? Can you do it? And they say, well, yeah, of course we can, Jesus. And again, kind of missing the point, Jesus continued, look, guys, if you want to be close to me, if you, if you want to rule, if you want to be great, you're going to have to do what I've already done, and you're going to have to undergo the suffering and death that I'm about to undergo. In my kingdom, he says, whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. We're in a series this summer looking at spiritual disciplines that help keep us connected into the life of Jesus. And today we're looking at the spiritual discipline of service, serving as a spiritual practice. And Jesus says that to be great is to be a servant. In a world that prizes leaders and leadership, Jesus says serve, uh, serve. And not only that, but to be a slave. Now, I want to pause and look at this word for a moment. The word is doulos. Sometimes Paul would introduce himself in his letters by saying Paul or Paul and Timothy, doulos of Jesus Christ, slave of Jesus Christ or servant or bondman. And when we see that and we see this calling to be a slave of Jesus Christ, it's kind of appalling at first because we think of not only the horrors of of slavery in the South, but as it even continues around the world today in human trafficking and sexual exploitation, why in the world would you call somebody to be a slave? But Jesus isn't using the word in that context. He's using the word to describe himself and uh, by definition his followers, by extensions, as ones who take the path of downward mobility by free choice. This, is, this slavery, this kind of slavery is an end in itself. It's not, it's not forced slavery. It's freely chosen, giving up your goals, giving up your agendas, giving up your rights for the sake of bringing out the best in others. That's what Jesus meant by being a servant or a slave. It's not about becoming wealthy or being powerful or having a platform for a claim or flaunting a title if we are going to be his disciples. Joanna Adams was the, is the uh, pastor of Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago, and she says this. She says, you have caught at least a corner of this mystery, this paradox, if you find yourselves living in a world that is turned upside down, if you find yourselves not saying, God, let me tell you what you can do for me, but instead saying, Lord, tell me what I can do for you. This has always been countercultural for, for us. Our egos lure us into thinking that in order to be important, in order to be loved, in order to be somebody, in order to have significance, we have to one-up someone else. We have to think we have, we, we think we have to prove ourselves or, or show off in order that we can command spotlight and get the attention that we feel we deserve. And so our identities and our self-worth often become bound up in our positions, in our titles, and 
We get angry and we hurt others when those identities are threatened, when we're not able to lord our positions over someone else. You might remember in, in 1910, not from experience, but from history, um, that uh, Roosevelt gave a speech, uh, Theodore Roosevelt gave a speech on the kind of people that society uh, needs to be a great society. A paragraph from that speech became famous. And if you've read Brene Brown's book, Daring Greatly, you will have uh, studied this text, but many of you have probably heard it before. This is what he said. It is not the critic who counts, nor the man who points how the strong man stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the, in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, and spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. Roosevelt was saying that part of what it takes to make a society great is people who do not merely sit back and watch their leaders do the work, acting as either critics or cheerleaders, but rather who each actively serve and help to make the country better. Same thing is true for a church, a healthy, faithful church isn't one where the people watch the paid staff do the work, but where each church member is actively using their gifts to build up the body of Christ in the kingdom of heaven around the world, which is something that I'm so grateful for that we strive to do so well here at Mount O. Now, if you've never decided to be a servant before, and you're giving it a try, the first time you try it, it might seem that you've done something heroic. Honey, I have unloaded the dishwasher. <laughs> Get the video camera, call my mom, call the newspaper, this is incredible. Mother, Mother Teresa, when she was asked, um, why do you serve? Uh, she said she did, she did it for the joy, for joy. It no longer looked to her like she was doing something heroic. Dallas Willard used to say that, the, that one of the great marks of spiritual maturity are the thoughts that no longer occur to you. One of the great marks of spiritual maturity are the thoughts that no longer occur to you. For instance, if someone who is struggling with alcoholism and is an alcoholic and their first day of sobriety will feel like a great act of heroism um, and, and they may think throughout the whole day how hard it is and how unusual it is that they can stay sober. After 20 years of practicing sobriety, they don't think about it so much anymore. It's still there in the back burner, but now they're free to think about much more interesting and, and meaningful things, and now sobriety is not an act of heroism. It's an act of survival and something to be grateful for, for your sanity and your life. Spiritual maturity is like that. 
Love cares, love serves, love looks for chances to serve. Service as a Christian spiritual discipline, well, it's kind of hard to capture in words. We learn best about it by observing it little by little over time. When we see someone simply listening attentively to another person, we're witnessing service in action. When we see a person holding the sorrows of another in tender loving care, we are witnessing service in action. When we see someone actively guarding the reputation of another, we are witnessing service in action. When we see everyday simple acts of kindness, we're witnessing service in action. And it's in these actions and many more like them that we begin to get a picture of service. This is what the kingdom looks like. It's not flashy. There's no glitz, no fog machines or purple lights. When you think about leadership in our society, we we have some symbols in different areas that when you see these symbols, you think, well, there's a leader. So in the courtroom, it's the gavel, right? There's the judge, the leader has, has the gavel. Um, in a hospital setting, certainly it's those who get to wear the white coats and the stethoscopes. There's the leader. In, in the university classroom, it might be the whiteboard. There's a clear sign of a leader or the pen in the hand. Um, in churches, it used to be robes and vestments. Now it's the over-the-ear microphone. Um, in, a, in a corporate setting, it might be a suit and tie, unless you're in Seattle and you can't tell the difference between a homeless person and a CEO. But these are symbols of leadership in our society. In the kingdom of heaven, this is what leadership looks like. This is the symbol of leadership. It is the towel and the basin. This is what leadership looks like in the kingdom of heaven. And of course, this is John 13. Jesus washes his disciples' feet at the Last Supper. um, And he does this uh, and, and redefines for them what greatness looks like. And after this startling act, he says, Do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord. You're right. That's what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. You know, of all the spiritual disciplines, service is the one that is most conducive to forming the virtue of humility in our lives. I think we would all like to be humble. I think we would all like to have humility. But you don't get humility by just trying to be humble. You get humility through the roundabout way of routine acts of service. As we serve, we, we grow in humility because we see others. Simone Weil uh, used to say in, in her book, Waiting for God, she said that every human being lives in an illusion. This is like the, the, condition, the, the human condition. And that greatest illusion of humankind is that we each believe that we are the center of the world. But the truth or reality is that each person, all points in the world are are actually equal centers. 
Every point in the world has, uh, is a center around something, and the true center is no single person or object in the world, but the true and real center is God. And so to give up that imaginary place or position as the center of the world is to awaken to what is real and to awaken to the love of neighbor. It begins with seeing the other. This is precisely what Paul is trying to get at with this church in Philippi in our text um, to help them to see and embody in their own life together as a congregation that Jesus Christ is the center of their universe and is meant to be the center of their lives. Not only their example, but in his life they find their lives. And so he says this, but even before this, I want to mention in verse 4, says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility regard others as greater than yourselves. And then he says, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, the morphe of, of God, so he had the status of God, did not regard this status as something to be exploited, to lord it over others, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave. So not just a human, but a slave man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And so he's going down, down, down. Not just death, but death on a cross. This is the death of condemnation. There's an ancient Jewish saying that says, uh, cursed is anyone who is, ki who is killed, who is hung on a tree. Jesus was killed on a tree. He went all the way to the bottom. Um, and therefore God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, not just the Christ his title, but this human in history, Jesus of Nazareth, every knee should bend in heaven and earth and under the earth. Every tongue would confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's called the kenosis hymn. It's this beautiful thing that within this letter that Paul writes to the Philippians, it's as though we think that the Spirit of God kind of gave him in this vision, gave him this hymn or this poem that he just busted out in the middle of his letter and was then extrapolated by the early church and used as a hymn to be sung in worship. And it's called the kenosis hymn or the Christ hymn. Kenosis um, means empty. So in the, in the beginning, in, the, in verse 4, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Vain conceit is the word kenodoxia, and it means empty glory. Do nothing out of empty glory. You're living in illusion. Uh, there's this glory. It's not really there, and you're kind of trying to get glory for yourselves, but you don't really have it. Do nothing out of empty glory, but instead look to the one who kennowed himself, who emptied himself to the doxa, the glory of God. It's a play on words here in this beautiful poem. And then, and so he says, em, um, this word keno, empty, take on the form of a slave, a doulos. Uh, Jesus Christ went to the bottom and then God exalted him to the glory of the Father. All right, kenodoxa will destroy you, is what Paul is saying. Empty glory will destroy you. Just look at celebrity culture, and when somebody is after empty glory, you know they're in for a fall. Simone Weil writes, 
to empty ourselves of our false divinity, to deny ourselves, to give up being the center of the world in imagination, to discern that all the points in the world are equally centers and that the true center is outside the world. This is to consent to the rule of mechanical necessity in matter and of the free choice at the center of each soul. Such consent is love. The face of this love, which turned toward thinking persons, is love of neighbor. The face toward, turned toward matter is the love of the order of the world or the love of the beauty of the world, which is the same thing. Whereas Jesus said, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Uh, William Law, in his classic work, Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, he challenges us to try to make every day a day of humility. Well, how in the world do we do that? This is what he says in his Middle English. Condescend to all the weaknesses and infirmities of your fellow creatures. Cover their frailties, love their excellencies, encourage their virtues, relieve their wants, rejoice in their prosperities, compassionate their distress, receive their friendship, overlook their unkindness, forgive their malice, be a servant of servants, and condescend to do the lowest offices to the lowest of mankind. You see, it's through simple daily acts of service that the grace of humility will form in us. The risen Christ summons us to this ministry and the fruit of that service is life and joy and peace. One more quote and then I'll close. This is from George Eliot. She was an English author in the 1800s and she wrote this of one of her characters. The growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. Our family and I live right behind a cemetery and every morning I sit out on the deck and I look out on the tombs. Um, I sometimes ask them for wisdom, um, but I also think about the tombs that are unvisited tombs. Many tombs are visited, but there are unvisited tombs and the lives of service that they led. Um, it is ordinary people who are just faithful to do ordinary things, unhistoric things that the kingdom is built on. Jesus chose not to be a leader who would lord his power over them who would relish the acclaim, silence those who threaten him, control those who didn't follow him. He chose instead to surrender his power, to stand in solidarity with the vulnerable and the powerless. He freely chose the way of suffering and death in order that all people could be empowered to be leaders too, in order that all people could work together for good, speaking where voices have been silenced, welcoming the lonely, feeding the hungry, helping the sick, easing the fears of the afraid. He asked James and John this question, can you drink the cup that I drink? 
Can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? The question comes to us today. Can we? Gracious God, this calling is so daunting to us. It flies against everything we are taught in our world. Give us the faith to hope in your promise, to know of your love that will then give us a great security that we might freely choose to be a servant, a doulos of you, giving ourselves away for the good of others. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.